0: Hi, hey everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Bible Discoveries, so the weekend show. I'm Corey, if this is your first time here. And on Bible Discovery, we're reading through the entire Bible this year. So we're getting really close to the end, which is exciting. But here on the weekend show, we like to take a minute and look more deeply at some of the big issues that pop up as we're reading through the Bible. So I'm here with Matlock, my husband. Matlock, why don't you tell everyone, you know, how you are and what we were supposed to read this
1: week? <laughs> how am I? H- how are I've been you? better. I've been sick for a while. <laughs> yes yeah, yes so anyways besides me today we were supposed to sorry this week we were supposed to read first thessalonians 4 wow i can't even speak first thessalonians 4 to philemon uh and that so questions that we we're the people uh sent to us yes. pertain to whether deacons can get remarried what does it mean you know if the wife dies for deacons stuff about deacons okay a bunch of questions about deacons we also have questions pertaining to what's the difference between the heart soul and spirit. And we also have a question pertaining to Jesus Christ's resurrection. What did he mean to the thief when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, if it didn't mean today? Right. So that's the general gist of it. Sure. So to, cap, to start things off, uh, I guess, no, I was actually going to read the big question. Sure, why not? Yeah, right now. We're not going to start off with the big question, but I'm going to read the big question. Just
0: so you're like just prepping everyone. Prepping for everyone. What's yeah, coming. I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, we didn't have one last week. So I was just like, oh. Anyways, so at the end of the show, we're going to answer this big question, which is ask Christians, how do we respond to the prosperity doctrine? Mm. That's it, it is a big question. That is a big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, we'll see. Anyways, Corey, I'm going to ask you the first question. Sure. Okay. Yep. It pertains to 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay. Okay, and this is from Louise, or Louis, I think it's Louise. Anyways, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, mm-hmm. in referring to the second coming, states, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I am confused because in Luke 23, Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Is there any way to reconcile this difference?
0: Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely there is a way to reconcile this difference. So you pointed out that in Luke 23, it's verse 43, I believe, when Jesus is uh, dying on the cross and the thief next to him confesses him as the Messiah. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll be with me today in paradise. Uh, but then we see this whole conversation here in First Thessalonians 4, where, where Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians because some of them, it seems that some of them have died because of persecution. So they have been murdered for their faith or executed for their faith. Uh, and Paul is encouraging them that this death is not the end. And he, he doesn't say death, he uses a euphemism for death, which we still commonly use today. Uh, which is sleep, uh, but it's interesting because this isn't the only thing that Paul says about death, Christian death in general. And I'm going to do a spoiler alert first. I'm going to say, kind of lay out the teaching, and then and then go back and give you some scripture references for it. So the idea basically is that as we are in an intermediary stage right now, right, Christ's kingdom has come, but we haven't received the full fulfillment of Christ's kingdom, that one day he will return and he will remake uh, the the heavens and the earth into the new heavens and the new earth. And we will live with him in a state like the garden of Eden forever with this new physical, spiritual world that is properly aligned together. Okay. So, uh, so, we will receive a bodily resurrection uh, not just a spiritual resurrection we will receive a physical resurrection as well that's the christian hope not just for spiritual eternal life but actually physical eternal life as well so the intermediary stage because even the apostle paul entered a different intermediary stage didn't he he died so where is his spirit now and and this is how we reconcile the difference between these two things so If we jump over to Philippians 1, we are going to read Philippians 1, verse 19 to 23. And this is the Apostle Paul, Struggling because he is in prison and he's struggling. Does he want to keep going on or, or does, he, does he really just kind of want to die? He's struggling with these things. So let's read uh, Philippians 1 verses 19 to 23. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body when whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul seems to be saying that if he just dies, he will be with Christ seeming to be just like that, that thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. Okay, if we jump over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, I I want you to listen to this. So the author of Hebrews is talking about, um, he's, he's comparing and contrasting what you came to, what you bought into, if you were a part of the old covenant versus what you're coming to, what you're buying into as a follower of Christ on this side of the cross, this new covenant. So again, Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. (laughs) For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made hearers beg that no further messages be spoke to them. So he's talking about uh, when, Israel's in the wilderness on Mount Sinai. Verse 20. For they could not endure the order that that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, Okay, so in there, he talks about how you're coming to the assembly of the firstborns. That's the assembly of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is called the firstborn from among creation. To those who are enrolled, probably in the Lamb's Book of Life that we read about later in in, um, Revelation to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Okay, so these are all things that you're coming to as a Christian right now. And those who are enrolled, that <coughs> assembly of the firstborn, those spirits made perfect are still awaiting what we are awaiting, which is the resurrection from the dead, This, this gaining a new body. All right. That's, that's the, the dead who will rise first that you're talking about in First Thessalonians 4. And finally, I wanna direct your attention to probably the most famous <clears throat> verse that talks about this, which is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. And here's what it says. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. so this this, again, this idea that while we're here in the flesh, we're away from God, we're away from Christ in in, in a separate there's a separation between us. But when we die, our spirits are with God. So what do you think? Does that, no, I think those so are too. all the scriptures that I wanted to point out. There's more of them, but I think, I think those are some really good ones that really go a long way in explaining that difference where it's against right. that now, not yet, right? So you die now and you're with God. We know that we will be in the presence of God, but we're still awaiting that, that final day right. of resurrection where the dead in Christ will raise first.
1: Yeah. I think too, there's another angle, just another way of looking at this question, um, how can we be in paradise today before the resurrection It's mm-hmm. like another way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And I think just, just taking Christ's words here where he says to the thief, um, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, he means starting today, like starting now basically, like upon the crucifixion because then right after in verse 46, Father, I, 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 I commit to you my spirit. Mm-hmm. So in general, the idea is that like starting now on this, upon this crucifixion, he goes down to Hades, or he descends to Hades, and he preaches to the uh, to the to the dead and to the spirits of there, according to Second uh, Peter three. Anyways, and then he comes back, and, he, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? And he sends to heaven, all this stuff. My point in saying this is that people sometimes get hung up about, oh, but he said today, but it wasn't today, and I I, I think that
0: except I think it was no, because Jesus is part of the is part of the Trinity, y- right? Yes, and 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 that man was going to die.
1: Yes. So, no, of, of course. No, of yeah. course. We're, we're saying the same thing. Yeah, we are. Right. We're saying the exact same thing. What I was just saying is, what it was saying is people get hung up about like, well, today. well right. the timing of People it get and... hung up about timing. It's not really about that. Like, right. Today just means starting now. Like, right. like This moment. It's happening now. Anyways, that's it. I, I, that would be the only other thing. If people get hung up about the timing. I don't think it's really about that.
0: Yeah, yes. I don't think.
1: So, but that's about it. I think you did a good job.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. Great, great, great. Okay, I'm going to move on then for 1 Thessalonians 5, Matlock. This is a viewer question for you. Sure. Um, this is what G.H. says. I have a few questions that I hope you can answer. I have been a partner with Bible Discovery for years, and I trust your expertise in the, in the Word. One, what is the difference between the heart, soul, and spirit? Two, what happens to the soul and spirit when we die? Do they live forever? Thanks in advance for your answers.
1: Okay. <laughs> is like the biggest possible question <laughs> so i actually have answered this question and i in uh in an article and i'll post that in the comment section for a, a fuller answer so i'm going to give it like a condensed That's a good answer idea. now because yeah. i think to answer all of this properly is just going to take away it's like a much. whole show it's a whole show it's a, it's yeah it's a, it's a whole sh- it's a, a lot of information too so anyways we're going to start off i think what we'll do is i'll start off with the last question do we live forever? Like, is the soul. I'm just going to highlight some verses here because obviously, according to the scriptures that we do, and so I'm going to highlight some verses for you to read for eternal life. Go to Mark 10, uh, verses 17 to 31. Luke 10, uh, verses 25 to 27. And then John 3:15 to 16. And also John 17, 3. Those all highlight that we have eternal life in Christ and that we have eternal life there. On another side, eternal punishment, okay? Daniel 12, verse 2. 2 Thessalonians verse 1, uh sorry, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, Jude 1, 9, and Revelation 20, 10, 14 to 15. All those highlight eternal punishment. So you have those who will inherit eternal life and those who will inherit eternal punishment, right? And God's the judge of that. So I'm just gonna say it off the cuff. Now the more to the more difficult question, uh, what's the difference between the heart, soul, and spirit? Um, let's go to First Thessalonians five twenty three. Let's go there and also Hebrews four. Let's see which one we get to first. So First Thessalonians five twenty three. Oh, I went too far. I should really get bring my own Bible. There's okay, let's, let's, it let's, helps. Yeah, let's do Hebrews <laughs> let's get 4 to start. Familiar
0: with the different pages, eh?
1: That's it's right, funny how it works. Hebrews 4, verses 11 to 13. Okay, yep. Uh, where are we? There we are. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's talk about Sabbath rest and God's uh, promise in the future. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts of intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay, so here he's he's actively highlighting that Christ, the Word of God, is able to even make a division between soul and spirit, which is like, you know, so difficult to say, okay, what is the division? Because it's clearly, they're so related. They're so... (laughs) Almost they appear identical even in the Old Testament, right? So they say, no, there is a division, but God can pierce that division. So from there we know that there's some sort of division that's made. Whether that's in substance or in function is a different story for today. I think it's uh regardless. I, I think that there is a difference, because I think Hebrews is making a case that there is one. That's what and God can make that difference. Now if we go to first Thessalonians five, um verse 23. It says now may God the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and you and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have a distinction that's made when Paul. So now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely in your soul and your spirit and in, and in your body. So that's really important. The distinction is also made there. Um so I think that there, there is a difference. I don't think we can say that they're identically the same. There is Whether there's a functional difference or difference in substance, that's a different story. That's more of a philo- philosophical thing. But um, So I think that there is a difference and that's what we're going to deal with now. And I think the reason why this is an important discussion is because of Mark 12, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind. So we're, we're getting into those details. So to, to summarize things as quickly as I can, spirit the spirit and the the flesh are seen as the two opposites, kind of, right? You have the spiritual world and the physical world, your body and the spirit. They're seen as kind of like bookends, if you will, or different broader categories of different worlds. And the soul is in there, so the soul is like what connects the, the spirit to the body and the body to the soul, um, as a way of looking. So, if you want to look at it in a in a simple way, you ever seen like a prism? Those uh, with a white light that shines through a prism and a color comes through? Uh, oh, if the white light is spirit and the, the body is the prism, color is the soul. I, It's a faint analogy, something that can help with this idea. Anyways, so um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40, uh, talks about that there's a dis- distinction between body and spirit. So let's read this here. Uh, Of Chapter 15, verses 40 to 44. Uh, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, where stars differ from star to star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's also a spiritual body. As Corey also mentioned, we're physically raised from the dead. So there's something, there's a relationship here, right, between the soul being related to your physical body as well as the spiritual body. Um, Anyways, so what I'm trying to say is here that there's these bookends between the flesh, the physical world, and the spiritual world. That's like your broader categories. Then you have the soul itself, which is like nefesh in Hebrew, and, and a psyche in um in greek but uh it, it mainly pertains to life so when you look at like the soul like life is in the blood that word is actually soul it's the same word that's used there um so the idea here is that soul has to do, your soul has to do with like the bedrock of your living self like everything that you are is your soul um and so that's distinct from let's say uh your spirit which is um It's very similar because you would say the soul is inside the spirit. You could say the spirit houses the soul, you could say. Anyways, don't need too much detail there, but essentially the soul is you. So an example of this would be, uh, we don't believe in reincarnation because we're Christians, but Christ said, uh, if you can accept that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come, uh, not in body, right? Not in his soul, but in spirit and in power. So the difference there is that He's not saying, if if soul and spirit were one for one, the same thing, Jesus couldn't say, well, if you can accept it, this is the soul of Elijah. Well, it's not the soul of Elijah in John the Baptist. It's not reincarnation. It's the spirit and power of, of Elijah. So there's a difference there that's, that's being made. So, so there's Elijah's soul, his personhood, everything that he is, who you are, that's kind of like the base of your soul. And your heart um, is more like your moral constitution. So, where your beliefs and your behaviors come from. So, for instance, uh, what what we can do. Um, a good way of looking at this Proverbs four twenty three, for out of your heart flows everything that you want want to do, and then John seven thirty eight. I'll just go pull up John seven thirty eight real quick. It talks about the same thing. From your heart flows the spring of springs of life. In general, the point here is, is to be made is that your heart is what you can do. It's your moral constitution. Right, your soul is what you are in terms of like your uh, your substance in soul and in body, in spirit and, and in flesh. I should say it's like that. It's like the the binding force. It's really hard to explain really fast. Anyways, so I think in general, as I said before, um, you have the spirit and the flesh. Is the broader categories. The soul is what binds the two together. There's a distinction that's made here or right, be- between them. Uh, and if you look at uh, what it says in uh, Mark 12, the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. If you look at it in, these, in this way, love the Lord your God with all that you can, with all your heart, with all that you are, your soul, your life, right? All of your strength, which is like all of that you have, your resources, um, not just physical might, but it includes that, but like all of your resources. So in the Aramaic, it would be translated wealth. So everything that you have, right? And then uh, all of your mind is all that you could. Everything that you could do. So love the, love the Lord your God with all that you can, all that you have, all that you are, your soul, and all that you could. And it basically it means the same thing that we all know it to mean. Love the Lord your God with every possible part of you. Yes. Yes. So All encompassing. All encompassing. There is
0: nothing that all right. excludes. What
1: is helpful about looking at it in this way, all that you can, all that you could, all that you are, and all that you have, is that it is a different way of looking at things. Right, because often when people read it, oh, all all of your strength. They often just read, oh, just like my per- my personal might, and that's not what it's talking about. So I think um, engaging in these discussions are really helpful for breaking down. You know, if you're really diligent with it, very uh, moving forward, they're very helpful in that way. Um, but you know, I think that we should also caution around being too rigid upon. uh, you know, I think this is absolutely true, but. There could be a chance that I might be wrong on, let's say, what the difference is between the soul and the spirit in substance or in function or whatever. So we just have to be careful about those things. But at the same time, I think that that's my answer. Sure. What do you think?
0: Yep. I think that's good. Think that's I mean, good? nothing right. to add on the right. value. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think all is good.
1: All right, Corey, let's just keep going then. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So this is regarding First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's from Terry. Yep. My church put a divorced man as a deacon. It's wrong according to scripture. What's your opinion and what should I do? Leave?
0: Okay hi terry all right so first timothy 3 is giving qualifications for elders um, and deacons right and yes there is that phrase in there let deacons each be the husband of one wife and it, the, the same phrase is for elders as well earlier on in first timothy 3 and this is found a couple of other places in scripture It's interesting, though, that that phrase, the husband of one wife, is a general phrase in Greek. It's not a specific phrase. That's why it it says, let them be a husband of one wife. It doesn't say, let them be never divorced, because it doesn't mean that they're From what I've studied, there is a phrase that Paul could have used that would have meant that, but instead he used this general phrase. So the meaning then of that is debated. Uh, Now, what everyone agrees on is that it carries this sense of faithfulness. So an elder and a deacon, they have to have marital faithfulness as a part of their characteristics right so and and the point of this we learn in 1st Timothy 3 is that it, they have to be above reproach from the outside looking in. So all these non-Christians living I- is surrounding them need to see the leaders of the church, the official leaders of the church being beyond reproach, being stand up men within the community and within the church as well. So that the, the name of Christ and the gospel of Christ may not be slandered or maligned. Okay, so reasonably above reproach. Um, this seems so. So, what this seems to exclude is anyone who has a, a dubious uh, y- y- moral character within their marriage. Okay. Any sort of marital unfaithfulness on their part, those people would be excluded. Uh, so, this sense of this has to be you'll you'll hear it when when you listen to other teachers or when you when you do some research into this uh, into this yourself you'll hear they must be a faithful husband they must be a one woman kind of man okay so that doesn't necessarily exclude For example, divorce on the grounds of sexual or marital unfaithfulness from the spouse or death of the spouse spouse, and then a remarriage, right? Um, This same phrase, you might be interested, this exact same phrase except the feminine form is used a couple chapters later in 1 Timothy 5 when Paul is talking about widows because remember in that culture, women generally had no legal rights on their own unless they were extremely wealthy. So there were absolutely wealthy women and wealthy Christian women who, if their husbands died or divorced them, they would be totally fine because they had businesses, they had a ton of wealth that they had inherited from their families, uh, and, and some of them even that they had created themselves based off of the businesses, they would be totally fine if their husband died or their husband left them. But there were a lot of women, lower class women, whom if their husband died, they would be destitute and completely dependent on other people, other people's charity in order to live, especially if they were very old and unable to, to, to work in any capacity, right? So uh, Paul is talking about these widows who's, who are old in, in terms of the time, like we would not consider someone over 60 very old, but in the ancient world, they, they were quite elderly. Um, and they had no family. So Paul emphasizes it is the job. It is your responsibility as a family member that if you have a destitute family member, you have to take care of them, Christian. What are (coughs) you doing? Don't malign the gospel. Take care of them. But for someone who is truly alone, the church would support and provide financially uh, and physically for those widows. But there is a qualification for those widows. She needs to, uh, in in 5 verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. All right. So it's, again, it's about this, this reputation of the church. She's going to be seen then as a family member of the church officially because the church's money is going to support her. So she must be a faithful woman, a generally faithful woman. So I think this means above reproach, above reasonable suspicion when it comes to marital merit marital faithfulness. There we go. That's the word. That's the word that I'm looking at. Um, If you want to take this as an absolute rule when it comes to divorced people, like as soon as you get divorced for whatever reason, you're out, you are disqualified. You have to ask some serious questions of the text as well. Would this mean that unmarried people are disqualified from an elder position or a deacon position? Because that, if you're going to take that to its extreme, you would need to take, you would need to also do that.
1: Because yeah, it does say specifically, he needs, right? He needs a husband, husband of, of one... one
0: wife. Right. So right. what if he's not a husband at all? Right. Is he yes. disqualified from being a deacon or being an elder? Which right. would be very strange because elsewhere, Paul actually encourages Christian men and women to stay single so that they can serve the Lord even better. So you would have to reconcile that. Not that being married is a bad thing, Paul goes into all of that, it's people are are called to different things. Now, what about people who are married but are unable to have children? If a deacon or an elder, a person coming up to that position was unable to have children, would that disqualify them from being an elder or being a deacon? Because the text says that they have to have their children in submission, not rebellious. So you would have to also make that a rule if you're going to make um, divorce a hard and fast rule. Also, what about people whose adult children are no longer Christian or have walked away from the faith, right? So they're not in submission to their father and mother's beliefs. Now, if you want to get technical on that one, the word for children in submission here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is tekton, which is young. Young means young child, like child at home. So you could, I guess, get a loophole around, Mm. around that, I would say. But look... There are exceptions for divorce. Uh, Divorce is bad. And it is not something that is ordained by God. You know, Jesus goes into that whole teaching: what God has uh, joined together, let no man separate. But there are—that's the general rule, and there are absolutely exceptions for that rule. We know some of them: marital marital unfaithfulness. You can make a good case for abuse, uh, spiritual and physical abuse can be a reason for divorce. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm advocating. Oh, you can just divorce your spouse and and get remarried. And no, you made a very significant commitment before God to be faithful to this person. So this is something that you have to work through very carefully. But depending on this situation, Terry, there's a lot of unknown. So I can't just say, yeah, you should leave your church right. or no, your church is right in having this guy. Yeah. I can't it's make that call because yeah, the the circumstances around it will make all the difference, the nuance. So my personal advice, and, and I, I'd be curious to see what you would say, Matlock, but <coughs> my personal advice here for Terry would be to go to the leadership of the church, voice your concerns, and ask questions with an open mind and open heart. So really listen. So why do you think that it is appropriate to have this person as a deacon, given their history? Um I think that's a perfectly appropriate Mm. conversation for you to have with your leadership team because there may be circumstances that make this completely fine uh, or not. So it's something that I can't give you a judgment on. I can just kind of, I can give you the background of the scripture, but you're going to have to deal with that with your church's pastor and elders.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think like it depends. Like what's the reason for the divorce? What happened beforehand? Like was it because he was cheated on and therefore... I mean, and therefore that was the cause because Christ permits that as, as yeah. a basis for divorce. So
0: is, or, or was his spouse v- like physically, mentally or spiritually abusive? Right. How has he responded to that divorce? Um, um,
1: so yeah, I think it's very circumstantial. I, I, was it before he was Christian? Was it after? Exactly. So, 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 many, so was many it ble- an
0: unbelieving spouse who left? Because, right, like, that's
1: it, 1 Corinthians 7. changes yeah. things. So it's not so sticky. And I I will say... The judgment of the elders is supposed to be, it ought to be, anyways. Um, all this stuff has already been taken care of, essentially. That's the idea. Like,
0: yeah, it should be. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is. Yeah, I, that's what in I'm talking about. It case. ought to be. Right. Yes, it ought to be. But Terry has, uh, Thierry, uh, like, if you have a concern about the way that the church is operating, you need to talk to the elder, yeah, the to. elders and the pastor. And you have to, without being uh, weird and subversive, you just have to go and be open and honest and confrontational in a helpful way without yeah. like name calling and all of these things. So you've okay. got to information gather and you have to question and bring forward scriptures and see how they're parsing those scriptures out as well. Mm. Um Yes, so I think the main question needs to be: Is this person a faithful person? Are they above reproach in their marital relationship? What does that look like? Yeah,
1: I think so that's, that's good. where
0: that's why I would land with that. Okay, I think
1: that's good. And we have another question related to deacons. We do. So let's just let's roll into it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So Matlock, I'm going to throw it at you then. Yes. Still from First Timothy, First Timothy three and Titus one. Uh. If the spouse of a deacon dies or has an affair, can the deacon remarry or must the deacon stay single? All right.
1: So if the spouse of a deacon dies, can the deacon remarry? Or if the spouse of a deacon has an affair, can the deacon remarry? Um, Or must this deacon stay single? Okay. So I'm just going to read a bunch from 1 Corinthians 7. Then we can both talk about it. Sure. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 16. I'm also going to read verses 25 to 28 and 39 to 40. So start with verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps for agreement for a little time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, it's important, This says a concession, not as a command. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. uh, So he switched there. For once it was the Lord, but not him. But now it's him, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and that she consents to live with him, she should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, She should not divorce him. So it's vice versa, it's both ways. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband, Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Then he goes on in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the uh, present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But you, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I want to spare you from that. So anyways, very to summarize kind mm-hmm. of things that's happening here. He's saying it's really circumstantial that's basically what he's saying. It, just, it really just depends. He goes, I prefer if you stayed as I am. I prefer if you stayed single.
0: He's saying it, like, he's, he's saying it's easier.
1: Yes, it's easier in a for lot spreading of ways. the gospel. Exactly. He's thinking evangelistically. He's thinking as yeah. the mission in Christ.
0: When you have a family, you have to have some sort of roots and a way that you can take care of that family. If you're raising right. children, it's it's more complicated and, right? And, than if it's just you.
1: That's right. And what does Paul say? If you don't take care of your children, you're worse than an unbeliever yeah. or your whole family.
0: And, and it's not a bad thing to have that. But it's a different thing. It's a
1: it's a different thing. That's yeah. exactly right. Then in verse thirty nine he says, um, "A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God." Okay. To so to add to this, the whole thing if the if the especially if a deacon dies, can can the deacon remarry? Seems like he's saying yeah yeah yep. He's saying, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Because you, you were faithful to your covenant of marriage. Uh, and you were faithful to your covenant of marriage. And now you are free to enter into a new covenant of
1: marriage. Right. If you're supposed to. And, if, if this, and if, with an affair, it seems like, yes, circumstantially. And it just depends on the situation that you're in and what God's covenant you to. your covenant has
0: been nullified. That's technically. Right. Yes. You don't have to, but you're within your rights too.
1: That's right. And must they stay single? No, you're not must, but it's it's saying it's preferred for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of evangelism, and that your mission work with Christ. Mm-hmm. So again, it's circumstantial. You can't put a hard, fast rule on it. Uh, I think that's kind of the whole point of the New Testament. That the reason why it's not written like Leviticus in point form notes, it's not hard, fast instructions of rules in the same way as you see, each you read.
0: However, I yeah. will say, yeah. I will say that do- this doesn't just give a deacon, like a deacon will... If a deacon goes to remarry, they must still do it in a very appropriate way. They can't be like a Casanova just going around romancing oh, all the right. it's very inappropriate. So when you have when you have a deacon who wants to, you know, date and get married, th- that has to be done in a really careful, respectful way because they are they are an official representative of the church. Yes. So it has to still be done in a very appropriate way, lest they be disqualified.
1: I totally agree with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the the qualifications in First Timothy 3 and yeah. Titus 1, they have to be above reproach. Yeah.
1: And faithfulness is the key there because if you're yeah. faithful in your marriage, right? How you, if you're not faithful in your marriage, how are you supposed to be faithful to the people of God? Exactly. Right? Exactly. All right. So let's move on, Corey. Yep. Question for you regarding First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's from, I don't know how to pronounce this, Oh, uh, Jesse. Anyways. So we'll sure. See. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. All right. Hello, my name is Anthony Ugo. Oh, well, I guess it's not Uchessi. <laughs> it's Anthony. Alright, from Nigeria. I just want to watch your program on Faith Channel, and I must say I am moved and admire your courage to yield to God's call. I have strong feelings, dreams, visions, and a calling to be a pastor, but I find myself resisting and fighting. I keep immersing myself in sin. and Each time I commit this sin, I feel so down. Is there a way I can run from this calling and just live my life like every other person?
0: Okay, so I'm not a pastor, um, so I'm very unqualified to give you this advice. I'm the daughter of a pastor. I work in a parachurch organization. I volunteer at my church, all of those things. I am also a sinner saved by grace through faith, so I empathize with your <coughs> struggle. I empathize with your you feeling called to ministry but not wanting to go into ministry. I had a similar experience when I was younger, not with the immersing myself in sin, but with but, with resisting a call to ministry at first, okay, but in my it is my opinion that you can do neither of those things. You can either answer the call to be a pastor nor live like live life like every other person. Um, because we are all called to walk, not according to the flesh, so not be immersing ourselves in sin. Um, so every other person cannot do this. You cannot, if that means like just, just live your life in sin how you want to. You can't do that. You can't just live like a normal Christian and still be immersing yourself in sin. It's just not right. Um, that's something that you need to get help with. So find a godly, uh, a godly accountability partner, preferably a pastor or an elder or a deacon in your community that can come alongside you and help you. Um, That definitely makes it easier, and you need to put a lot of prayer into this issue and and invite (coughs) God to help you overcome the pattern of sin that you've developed in your life. But also, you cannot become a pastor when you are, I I don't think you can become a pastor with good conscience right now if you are stuck in a pattern of sin, because it's not going to make it better.
1: You're just becoming a pastor
0: or becoming an elder or becoming a deacon at this point in your life. If you are ensnared, if you're trapped, if you're stuck in a pattern of sin, it's not going to make it better just to slap pastor on your name. It's going to make it worse,
1: Mm.
0: right? You can't become responsible for a whole uh, uh, community of people. And pretend like that sin doesn't exist. So my my advice, or, or my, what I would say to you, is the same, regardless of whether you answer your a uh, call to ministry or not. You need to find. You, you need to put serious prayer into this. Put serious repentance into this. Into this lifestyle. Work that out. But seek out a a, a pastor or an elder or deacon in your area that has, a, or another fellow Christian, if none of those things exist around you, that that is you know, born again in spirit filled and ask them to counsel you, to help you, to come alongside you, be an accountability partner. That's what I would say. What do you think, Matt Locke?
1: Yeah, I was going to say like, um, Peter says that we're all part of the royal priesthood. Mm-hmm. We're all priests according, right, in, in that way. Now, that doesn't mean we're all called to be uh, leading a congregation of people. That means that everyone's called to ministry in a different way. So if you have a family, you're called to ministry to your family. Leading an exemplar life for your family is ministry. Being a good, living in good works, as Paul was just saying, being a good man is part of your ministry. Mm -hmm. So, getting out of sin first of all is your first step. And I think you're right. Get involved with a church group, a community, uh, and, and, and a leader who can help you get out of that that pattern of sin. Yeah,
0: I mean, we've just read the qualifications in First Timothy 3 for an elder or for a deacon, and you have to be above reproach outside the community that's and right. in the community of Christians.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, I think that, yeah, you you keep resisting and fighting it. So I don't think there's... Here's what I'm trying to say. You're, you feel like you're called to be a pastor at this moment in life. Whether that's true or not is neither here nor there at the moment, because everyone's called to ministry in a different form, whether that's evangelizing, Right. Whether or not that's, official, you're officially evangelizing out there in the street, right? Whether or not you're leading a church. Whether or not you're just being a, a, a household representative of God to your family. Perhaps unbelieving. Or perhaps they're believing. The point here is to, or perhaps you have young kids and you need to show them what it means to be a true godly person. So my point in saying all this is that uh, you're still called to be part of the world priesthood. Even if that doesn't mean you're leading a congregation. And that's how you have to look at it. So you can't run from that. That's just part of the Christian call. Mm-hmm. So you can't run from that at all. So I, I don't think there's anything to run from whatsoever. You can't live your life like an every other person. Uh, and, by, and I'm assuming by every other person, I'm assuming that that means like every other Christian person. Just like who...
0: Without responsibility of well, other Christians? No, without responsibility
1: of, of leading a congregation. Right. So I, as opposed to living your life... Uh, like the immersed, world. Like the world in sin. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, say, yeah. like a non-Christian. So, right. So from that angle, if, you, if you're living your life like any other Christian person, right you're still called to to lead in what God has called you to lead. It doesn't mean leading a whole, a megachurch. It doesn't even call leading 10 people in a youth group. It could just be leading your family. You're called to sort of be an example of what God and what Christ has done through you. So in that case, you can't look at it like, oh, i am called to this position or this position or my status is here or my status is there. It's not about statuses and positions. It's about being a saint. So being holy, so it's about doing that first, and then if you are truly humble, right, God will uh, exalt the humble. God will raise the humble up. But you have to, but you have to be humble first. You have to have humility to you, and then let God and let God. God will, if you are truly called to be a pastor and lead a congregation, regardless of your sins right now, God will make a way for it to happen. But you have to become humble and following God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind first. And there's no. There's no like alternative to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just, there is it's the true for all of us. We yeah, all need God to grow the fruits of the Spirit in us, right? That's which, right. Which, like, it, it it caps off with self-control.
1: That's right. Right?
0: Like, these are the things that will grow in us as we follow God with, with all that we are and all that we have. So we're not going to stay stuck in these sins. We're, it, that's right. Unless we're trying to. That's unless right. Unless we're trying to. So we're allowed to struggle with things, but it is not a good idea to take on any sort of leadership role if you are actively stuck and ensnared and trapped in a pattern of sin. It's not a good idea.
1: Start small, baby steps, work your way out of that sin. Get help, draw in a community, get a a pastor, church leaders, people to help you get out of that sin. And then as you move forward in your spiritual life and spiritual growth, you get sanctified and justified. Let God do the work through other people and we'll see where it goes from there. Don't think about positions. Just don't. Uh, Just move forward with God that way. Okay. Awesome. Corey. Yes. Big question.
0: Right. Okay.
1: As Christians, how do we respond to the prosperity doctrine? This is from Joe. Joe. What do you think, Corey? What say you?
0: All right. Well, prosperity doctrine. So we should probably define the prosperity doctrine. <coughs> Go ahead. I was not prepared to define the prosperity doctrine. <laughs> <You weren't>.
1: But <laughs> but well,
0: but I can but, but I mean it it is <coughs> essentially a teaching right. that says if you are a Christian, God will give you stuff. If yeah. you are a good Christian, God will make but, you wealthy. If you donate to God's causes, God will give you over and above like the physical money that you gave back. He's going to give you more physical money. Right. You're going to be really wealthy and have everything that you need and a great life right now if you're just a good Christian.
1: Right. And a lot of that comes down to so, some people are like, oh, if you give me like a thousand bucks right now here at the altar, here at the at the stage... Then God will bless your... your... He's going
0: to give you $10,000. Exactly. He's going to give you a new job. So He's going to about... give you a new car. It really it really uh, taps into our greed. Yes. And it taps into our, I think, our real desperation. It preys on people who are not already wealthy. It also preys on people who are wealthy, don't get me wrong. But it preys on people who are stuck in systems of poverty and 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 living in really expensive areas of the world and who are actually struggling with that. It yeah. is extremely evil to tell someone in the name of God that God is going to do that. You become God as that preacher who is promoting that. You become God and you tell, you tell them for your own gain so that you can take the rest of their money that they have. You're telling them what that God right. absolutely will do something and it's just not the case. It's just, I mean, we we look at the lives of the apostles. We look at the lives of the apostle Paul. And he says, I've, I've learned to have a lot and I've learned to have nothing. We look at how they lived. It's just not true. We look at how Jesus lived humbly. It's just not true. Right. But I want to focus on 1 Timothy 6. Oh, okay. Go verse
1: 5.
0: I'm going to read verse uh, five to ten. Verses five to ten. Okay. Um, so this is describing false teachers. Okay. I'm going to start halfway through verse five. Uh, I'm going to say yeah, h- halfway through. Just start verse. Just start verse three. Verse
1: go all three the three way today. back. Just go verse three. It's only two. Our
0: verses. editor loves when I do this. Okay. Just start verse right, three. Brandon? Go to verse. First Timothy six, verse three. You're yeah. right. I'll just. I'll just. Yeah. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I think that is so clear. Yeah. It is so clear that people, it's the people, the the, the false teachers and the people who are following them are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Guys, that is the prosperity doctrine. Yeah. Godliness, me tithing, me giving to the work of God is a means of gain. That, that's, that's not right. And I love what Paul says. He goes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If you can just be content with what God has given you, that is great gain. Um, another, another area of scripture that talks about that, there, there, and there's several, but I want to draw our attention to 2 Peter 2 verses one to three. So this is Peter now, not Paul. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, again, we have this false teacher, this false teacher role being equated with greed and with the exploitation of the people that they are teaching with lies. So, how do we respond to the prosperity doctrine? By reading the truth from the scripture. Godliness is not a way of gain, (coughs) right? God has different plans for different people. We see that throughout the history of the church. We see that in the scriptures. Some people were very wealthy, like King David. Some people were very poor, like Christ and Paul. Uh, I I mean.
1: I want to read a verse too that just counters the whole idea of just gaining things too, for right here. Because I know those verses did as well, but even even in, uh, uh, Philippians 1. Let's start off at, um, let's just read verse 27 to verse 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should o- not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw and I had, and now here that I still have. So the, the line Wait, here,
0: we have to suffer? Yeah, that's right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not whoa.
1: only to believe, but also to suffer. In other words, it's like that's the opposite of the prosperity gospel right there. Yes. Right? And it's not just rebuked, but it's like you're also called to this as well. Yeah. Now, this doesn't mean everyone's <clears throat> going to suffer like get martyred and everything like that. It doesn't mean that. These it are different portions of suffering. It
0: doesn't mean that God has called us all to be poor.
1: No, no. It's
0: that we all have a cross to bear. We all have That's a mission right. to carry out. We all have the same purpo- purpose to be good ambassadors of Christ, to be witnesses to the gospel of Christ to this world. However we do that, as long as we're doing it with integrity and in spirit and in truth, we're we're good, right? But when we come across these doctrines that are just obviously lies and obviously contradicting scripture we have to point people back to the scripture and not put up with the crud because as second peter says here Many will follow the, their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The gospel's being blasphemed. It's being, it, it's a laughing stock. I mean, think about the word televangelist, right? It's been so maligned because of these, these people, these false teachers who are promoting the prosperity gospel and, and, and really just changing the gospel of Christ to something perverse that in, that it, it taps into our, our natural human greed and our desire for more. And it says that that is good and that is godly and it's demonstrably false. Yeah. It,
1: it, in terms we of, gotta be really careful. I totally it. agree with you. And as how do we respond, Corey? I feel like to answer all that question, all the nooks and crannies for that, it's really difficult. It's just evil. It's just pure evil. So We teach how, the truth. Yeah.
0: And we're not afraid to, to, to call out doctrines that are false. That's right. That one's false. Yeah,
1: that one's clearly false. That one's clearly false. Yeah. So it's, um, I think just depending on how, you know, how it's laid out for someone, like it could just be like, you know, you hear it at your church or you hear it around, you hear someone listening to it with, in a you know, in your heart of hearts, you know that this is evil. Do your best to guide people away from that.
0: Yeah. That and stuff. bring them back to the scriptures yeah. because this one is really easy. I mean, we, uh, yes. I, we, we read 1 Timothy 6, 2 Peter, and, and you read?
1: Philippians 1
0: perfect like just there are so much more there's There's so so much much more but but even just those three bringing people back and going look i'm concerned because
1: yeah
0: are we imagining that godliness is a method of gain here is that is that what we're is that what we're saying because that's an element of false teaching according to paul and peter
1: It totally is I think that's how you respond to it. I think so, too. I think that's good. All right. All
0: right, guys. Well, let us know what you think in the comments section. Uh, Send us your questions and your comments. And until next week, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high-quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under Donate. Your support really means a lot to us.